everybody on Education Monsters. I'm here with Lucy and Lucy lives in Paris. She's my dear friend. And by the way, she has an aunt in Ottawa. So <laughs> it makes her very special because I live in Montreal. But anyway, welcome to you, Lucy. Hi. Hi. Thanks for uh, having me. <laughs> you're very welcome. Such a pleasure. So Lucy is a very good friend of mine. She completed her bachelor's in arts with honors in fashion with a specialty in fashion design women's wear. And she works currently in a fashion in the fashion industry in Paris. So Lucy, could you please introduce yourself to listeners? So I am um, a new arrival in Paris, I suppose, and trying to settle in here. Do you feel like Emily in Paris? I wish I was Emily in Paris. It's quite funny that she came from Chicago and landed in Paris doing fashion, which is, um, well, close to my experience in a way, since I hail from Chicago as well. But not, my life here is not nearly as glamorous, unfortunately. Oh yeah, can you walk in high heels on cobblestones? Yeah, that's the art I've mastered here. <laughs> but I make it work. Yeah, that's what happens. Like, you have to make it work. Exactly, to look good. Beauty is pain, one would say. <laughs> awesome to hear. So how about you let us know about your background? So I was um, born in the Netherlands and grew up in China, then spent a year in Chicago studying fine arts, but then realized that's not really my thing. So I um, then went to London to pursue fashion and ended up in Paris. And so that's a lot of traveling. So did you do all this by yourself or were you with family? Well, my parents are still both in China, and in the well, my fashion dream was to go to um, New York and study fashion there because I think I watched too much Sex in the City when I was young. <laughs> so you know, like the New York dream, want to be a New Yorker and go fabric shopping in nudes, you know, like they would do on Project Runway. <laughs> so that was what I wanted, but unfortunately, I wasn't accepted to Parsons. In hindsight, it's a it's a great thing, but back then I was so heartbroken. So I decided to um, go to Chicago instead, and I thought, wow, Chicago, New York, how different can it be? <laughs> right, same country, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, two big cities in the same country can be that different. But, uh, well, it was different in the end. Yeah, I enjoyed my time there, but I decided it's not a permanent place for me. Yeah, what did you specifically not like? Was it the culture shock? Was it the winters? What made you turn off from Chicago? Actually, I've moved there before I ever visited. So I um, sort of just bit the bullet and went. And yeah, just <laughs> wanted to see how it would be without knowing. I had no preparations beforehand. So once I got there, it was um, I realized it's quite a difference from what I had envisioned. And that was already, I mean, it was like a fantasy in my head that was didn't turn out. In the end, I think... The coach, yeah, the people there are not as multicultural as I thought. So there were, um, making friends in the beginning was difficult, more difficult. And the mentality, um, was also different. It's not as international and sometimes the conversation could, couldn't go in certain directions or couldn't go as deep. And I found that difficult and making a real connection. As yeah. a comparison, because before Chicago, you were in China and the Netherlands. Did you compare then Chicago to those to those places specifically? Yeah, for sure I did. I went to international school in Beijing, and a lot of people there are expats who uh, moved around a lot, and quite a lot of Americans. So I thought, 
you know, that was how it was going to be. But of course, these people have traveled so much and hail from all different cultures. So it wasn't like, it wasn't a representation of America in general. So I didn't make a comparison to that. That's what I expected, but it wasn't the same. So when you mentioned Americans in Beijing, were they mostly white? Uh, no, they were, well, Asian Americans, mm -hmm. mostly, I would say. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Where did your parents' decision come from to put you in the international school? Did they have bigger plans for you, big projects of you being this big international person? I think um, in the beginning, they put me um, purposely in the Chinese boarding school because they wanted me to learn Chinese first and foremost. And then after that, I think I didn't fit in with the education system, the rigid education system of China. And in a way, I suppose they wanted me to, um, well, learn English and also have a choice because the um, Chinese um, education system is quite rigid and strict. And there's kind of one path down. There's two good universities I need to go to. It's very narrow. And also after I decided to pursue arts, I think um, they realized it might be a good idea to expand the horizon, have more options, speak English. And if I want to leave the country and go somewhere else, I, I could. So they kind of wanted to give a different, how, how would I say, a different dimension to my education. So I have more choices. And back then, did you know specifically about fashion or were you just stuck generally in art? I think I was quite a typical Chinese girl who in the beginning wanted to go to Ivy League school. I wanted to go to, you know, like get good grades, go to Harvard or something, you know, like that. And I think I took elective in the arts and I quite, I enjoyed it a lot. And after exploring some more, I didn't really prefer fashion until much later when I was in Chicago, when I um, decided that's the specific design pathway I wanted to go down. Because fine arts is very conceptual and, well, we would say you need the gift of the gab, like be able to talk, be able to elaborate a lot on the arts, like on your art pieces, which wasn't exactly me. I also preferred for my um, projects or artworks to have a um, practical application in a way, not just for someone to admire, but actually be able to um, be integrated in a person's life. It seems like China also has a big art scene, but it could be a different sort of art, like Oriental versus Occidental. So is there a preference early on that led you to pursue one over the other? I think um, the Chinese art scene is growing very fast. Um, it's expanding a lot, and there's a lot of contemporary Chinese artists. Well, one, one of the most famous is Ai Weiwei. His art is, um, could be quite political and quite extreme, which I think is interesting, but it's performance art. For me, I think, although it's growing very fast, there it's not as, not as rich is not the word, but the different pathways and people's perception to art, it's not quite the same as here, where one could almost be more open and more accepting or more appreciative of certain types of art, which is why um, Ai Wei fared very well in uh, Western countries rather than in China. He got imprisoned for being for speaking out against the Chinese government and such. So there's a limitation in a way to what you can express in China, whereas here there's more freedom and there's um, also more resources to help young artists. Yeah, do you feel like this censure, this censure is a big limit to creativity in general? Or do you think that some people can adapt to that and turn this into a strength? I think, yeah, I think both. I think people now in China are 
thinking outside the box, like coming up with ways that can um, overcome the censorship. But when you're in a political environment such as China, sometimes it, it, it can be scary to um, go against the government or do things that's too political or too um, expressive. Yeah. But I, I do think there's a lot of very brave artists and who's staying true to themselves and saying what they've got to say. But there is a risk, which you wouldn't have outside of China. And it seems like it's not only just in the arts, but also in other areas such as science uh, or even biomedical engineering, where you have a rush of students like going into more Western countries and maybe yeah. less the other way around. So it's not that common for people to be like, oh, I'm just going to go to China to study, unless it's like studying abroad, which is for like a semester or maybe a year. But it's not as common to do the entire like bachelor's or master's into China. Do you think that there's like availability of visas in the States or in Europe versus in China as for students who would like to study there? I think if you have the means in China, it's quite um, uh, a thing to do to get your kids to leave China, to study abroad, to because they, well, there's a lot of amazing universities overseas. Whereas I find on the flip side, the exchange students who come from outside of China tend to stay for a shorter period and perhaps with an intention of returning after. Whereas um, a lot of the students who decide to pursue their education outside would like to stay outside of the country. And I think that that's the kind of a difference I find. Yeah. And yeah. what do you think is that? Well, I think people leave China and see a lot of things that perhaps isn't available to them back in the country and they prefer it outside. Although there's a lot of opportunities, well, especially financial opportunities in China that awaits um, uh, foreigners in a way. But I find the ones I've spoken to has the mentality of going to China, make a fortune and leave. It's rare that someone goes to China with intention of setting down roots there, I find. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if it has to do with perceived stigma as well, because when we talk about, like, actually for our generation, uh, we see the U.S. as the American dream, like the land of freedom. And Europe is like, oh, it's romantic. So there's like something that attracts us that was not there in the beginning. That's something, okay, maybe it's also reinforced by the movie culture. But like when yeah. we see China, like you're right, it's about money. It's also about industrialization. But we also have this toughness on the outside. When we, for example, talk about the one-child policy, like it's something that would sort of remove one's right in the U.S. that would not be really acceptable. Even if the U.S. was overfloating, I don't think they'll ever take measures because the culture is more individualist versus a more collective unit in China where they would be more likely to follow rules. And that's also why they deal with the pandemic much better than us because they're able to make themselves seem selfless and to care more for the community. So they actually wear masks and they social distance. It's not like in France where just people go outside, party, do whatever the heck they want. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it is very interesting because like that mentality of being a collective comes from the smallest details such as writing the date. Like in China, you write the date, the year first, and then the month, and then the individual day. Because it's the biggest, the larger entity comes first, and then smaller and smaller. Whereas, obviously, in the US, or well, here you write the singular number first. It's from the individual. First and foremost is the individual. 
or as an Asian. Here. Yeah. It's yeah, weird sure. because in the US, we write the month first. Oh, it yeah. Like, it would be like December 4th, December 4th, 2020. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, actually. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing Emily in Paris, actually. She got the date mixed up because she wrote the month and the date. Yeah. That's funny. Talking about this, like, uh, my birthday is June 12th. So when I came to the States, you know, you can get free breakfast on your birthday. So you yeah. can see on my ID card, 12, 6, but it could also be inverse, like December 6, and I could have two birthdays and two waffles. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> nice perks. Yeah. So tell me, Lucy, what languages did you grow up at home? So at home, actually, when I was a baby, I was in the Netherlands. We had uh, old, a Dutch grandma basically take care of me while my mom worked. So I, when I was a baby, the first language I spoke was Dutch. I was taken back to China when I was just almost two years old as a baby. So then obviously I quickly forgot the language. So at home, my mom from is from Hangzhou. So she spoke the Hangzhou dialect. And my dad's from Shanghai. So he spoke the Shanghainese dialect. But mostly when we're a family, we would speak Mandarin. However, if they want to discuss something they don't want me to understand, they would speak in a dialect they think I don't understand. But obviously towards the end, I caught on. Yeah, we mostly spoke Mandarin at home. I always thought it was a shame that my mom didn't teach me Dutch because I that's a, I have the nationality there, so I, I really should know the language at least a little bit. So that's my next language goal. After I get the French down, hopefully <laughs> I will learn Dutch a little bit. But yeah, mostly Mandarin when I was growing okay. up. Yeah. And also, was it difficult for you to split between having English in school during the day and having Mandarin at home in the evenings and on weekends? Was it like a jumble on your brain or was it very easy for you to distinguish both languages? Um, made it harder for me to learn English probably because I was very reliant on being able to just speak Chinese at home. But towards the end, once I became fluent in English, it wasn't a problem at all to alternate between the two. Whereas now I find because I rarely have the opportunity to speak Chinese anymore. Now when I visit, when I go back to China, it takes a bit to kind of adjust to speaking Chinese full time. But back then, if I was switching throughout the day, it was no problem at all. Yeah. How long did you live in London? I was there for um, four years and then I came to Paris one year in the middle for an internship and then I returned for another year. So all together, I was in London for five years. Did you have some issues adjusting between the American that you learned versus the British? How I was think, that for you? Um, you mean language or mentality or culture? I guess all of it. The I, I still remember the first day I, I got to London and immediately the... The vibe, I suppose, was more familiar. It's very odd. I find I connected with people much better there. Even though I would say the British are, in the beginning, are quite reserved. They're not like the Americans who kind of welcome you with open arms and you become friends within a day. It took time to build meaningful friendship, but I find all the friends I've made, all the good friends that um, I've met in London, I still am. Um, with now. Also, I remember when I first got there, the accent was quite imposing. It was harsh on the ears. Um, <laughs> harsh, like... Yeah, it was just like everyone is in a, has a British accent. I, I don't know why I thought that, that would be shocking, but it was quite a surprise. It was... I definitely noticed the difference in speech. And also, people from the north of England uh, who has a stronger accent, I couldn't understand. Well, Scottish, Irish, like, I... Where, um, I couldn't understand them. 
But towards the end, it kind of flipped. Now that when I visit the states, the accents are very. <laughs> I realize it's very, very American. Did you feel like an outsider in Europe when you first came because you could not integrate as well or not have the same background as everybody else? Surprisingly, no. I felt quite right. I fit it quite easily. I would say because I find that all the people, maybe it's a art community where the creatives are. Generally, to be quite open-minded. But I also find that a lot of people I encountered are very well traveled. There was no stereotypes towards、um, someone who came from China or things like that. And when I first got to the U.S., people asked me how I left the country, <laughs> and I was I was surprised by the question. I didn't know what they meant. I I said I took a plane here, and they're like, they asked me if I was allowed to leave the country without the government's consent. So that was a question I got. <laughs> From there, someone also asked me if people do kung fu on the streets. <laughs> Gosh,、um, yeah, but in in the UK, I never people did not make me feel like a foreigner. <laughs> What was your answer when people asked you if people do kung fu on the streets? I didn't know whether they were joking or not. After I realized they were not joking. <laughs> I was in a way shocked. I didn't know what to say. I was like, "Of course, people don't do kung fu in the streets, and people don't fly like crouching tiger, hidden dragon." You know, <laughs> it was you know like with the long hair and be like, like exactly, yeah, flying across the roofs and things. I was like, this is not real. It can't be. Some I can't believe someone genuinely asked me that question. <laughs>、yeah. I know it doesn't feel right. <laughs> Oh, it was just—it was amusing though for me. <laughs>、yeah. I think it's one of those things that when you hear it once or twice, even within a year, it's not so bad. But when you grow up with it, hearing all those things since you were born until the day you die, it becomes normal, and that's when it becomes dangerous because this is you accepting the microaggression that comes from everywhere, and people are like, "Okay, it's just an innocent joke." Like honestly, ignorant—it's not their fault. But at、yeah. some point, like, where do we just step up and be like, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be asking those things because those are assumptions that you see in the movies. Yeah, but people are unaware and they don't realize certain things could be offensive or they don't realize they're ignorant. And I think it's difficult to sometimes call people out on it because you always want to be agreeable. And you know, if they didn't have bad intention, in a way, it's harder for you to correct them. Almost, to people need to become more aware. Let's also not forget that we can also like we tend to be more compassionate than most and be like, oh no, he's a poor little ignorant person. He didn't mean well, like he didn't mean bad. But、yeah. like you know what? We're also reinforcing this culture by not doing something. Like we're not helping the guy in the end. We're just like trying to save face during that encounter. But he's gonna do the same thing for like the next. Person who doesn't look white. For many, and for me, sometimes too, it's much easier to let things slide than make it awkward. Because then you take on the responsibility of having to say something, and I think that makes it difficult for people, especially me. Sometimes you know when you're having drinks, you don't want to be that person who makes <laughs> ruin the vibe and say something and become all serious. But I agree. I think there could be an artful way of、um, informing. Without being patronizing, which is which is very difficult to do, I find. Or it could also be useful to keep asking questions, like why do you think this way? Where did you see this image? Or how did you learn that people did kung fu on on the streets? Who told、yeah. you that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to to ask them questions rather than being too.、Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think people in London would be less curious than people in the states. I think it could be a matter of education because in Europe we tend to be a little more colorblind. 
So not judging someone by their color, but it doesn't mean they don't have questions about it. So it could be that they're more subtle. And it could also be that the, the sense of identity in Europe is different as in the US, which is a very new country and same in yeah. Canada. So when you say, okay, I'm, I'm from Canada, people would be like, yeah, everybody. But like, where do you come from? Because this country is so new that they're still building that identity and trying to find out, okay, so it's normal to come from many places. So it's not necessarily a bad intention. It's just the norm that this country was not built like a few thousand years, just like France or England, where the identity is much stronger. But perhaps also the British people are much more reserved. Maybe they do have these questions, but they they know not to ask certain questions. Whereas in the US, ask whatever, just speak up, like free, free freedom of speech. People mm-hmm. will say anything without having a filter, I find. Whereas um, in Europe, people are much more reserved mm-hmm. and they do think before they ask. And they're very aware of political correctness, especially yeah. when it comes to race and culture. And was the experience similar in Paris? Did you find this warmth in group of friends and in parties that people do not feel, make you feel like a foreigner? In Paris, it's harder for me to gauge because of the language barrier, I would say. Um, because everyone I've had close relationships with are Anglophones in a way, or of someone French who speaks very well, fluent English essentially, because they've lived abroad, because they've been, you know, in a, English speaking country. But uh, so, aren't you taking classes on Italki? <laughs> I am indeed and I am making progress. But I find French the French <laughs> I have an amazing teacher. Thank on you. And she's helped me so much. Oh yeah? Is she hot? Yeah, super. You wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, it took because I work with a lot of French people at work and in a way it's the same as my experience in um, London, they, it, they're slow to warm up, I find. It takes time to get close to them and become friends with them. Mm-hmm. But once you're friends with them, you can just bury people together. Yeah, I think, I think so. Once you break through that barrier with time and patience and humor and, you know, once you get there, get past there, I think, yeah, they are very genuine, very nice people. But... It, how would I say? I I find they're tougher than British, almost in a way. They don't let they don't let you in <laughs> quite so easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this can be an issue for foreigners. But I'm I'm glad that you're able to persist. And it's not just for foreigners, actually. It's like anyone else, even from France. Like breaking into a group that's already formed is pretty difficult, even without the language barrier. So on top of having that challenge, you still like had this determination of staying and making yeah. your way and being like the real Parisian and just like eating your baguette. And <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I got that tattooed on my hand. So it says a lot about my determination. Okay. Can you describe it? <laughs> so when I was interning in Paris, I um, wanted something funny, a, a tattoo here. And I was with my, um, well, French friends, essentially. And I wanted, I wanted something just kind of tacky, ironic, in an ironic way. And what's more iconic than a baguette? But I didn't want it to be so graphic. So I literally wrote it in the, in the word. <laughs> and then when I went to the, the tattoo artist, he was a bit like, seriously, you want this on your hand? <laughs> and I said, why not? I, I just don't think it should be so serious. So I yeah. have it. And I think it made me quite a few friends because people think I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So is that one of the icebreakers? Like, hey, why do you have baguette on your head? 
yeah, it helps when conversation gets a bit awkward. I was like, oh, look what I got on my hand. And that always starts, starts something off. Or um, people would spot it. And everyone's found it funny so far. So, so far, so good. Okay, which comes to the next topic. And a good icebreaker for dating. Well, <laughs> the guy I did, well, they found it amusing, I would say. And I think to have something kind of, in a way, very stupid on your hand. Says something about me not being so serious. Take it lightly, I suppose. No one's shared their in-depth thoughts on my baguette tattoo yet. <laughs> I had a question, but I forgot. <laughs> something about dating and the baguette. The baguette in the hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, no. Quite appropriate, isn't it? <laughs> so French of you. I know. What can I say? Trying to fit in, you know? I'm trying to fit in. <laughs> so so far you've decided to stay in Paris, right? Yes. Okay. What are your future plans? Future plans, immediate plans is to get my French down. <laughs> Second step, I would say I'm not sure if this applies to everyone, but I think people generally have a few year plan or five year plan or something like that. I would like to get a more secure job. This is quite generic. But put down real roots here. Um, because I've been floating for so long. I just want to settle, get a place, and meet someone here. Maybe they can help me with the French, <laughs> you know, everything all together. Get a dog. <laughs> oh, doggy. Yeah, get a pet. I, I think once I have, um, once I have a pet here, I will feel like I actually belong here. Language and the pet. That's, uh, nice. Yeah. What are you going to call your pet? Something Chinese, like dumpling or a bun, but in Chinese. I, I find that would give me a... It's quite charming. <laughs> Could you name him Tofu? Yeah, I... Oh my gosh, that was one of it. Tofu or Baozi. <laughs> you know, something cute. Yeah. And would it be confusing for the dog to hear, like, commands in Chinese or in French or in English? I think I'm going to try all three because I'm going to teach my kid all three and I think the dog is a good place to practice, see how they react. Oh my gosh, the poor dog. <laughs> but apparently they react to more the tone of your voice than actual words. It's so true. Suppose, yeah. Very, so very true. I suppose if I keep the tone generally the same across three languages. And if anything, you can always send your dog to italki. A <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Have a, my amazing French teacher teach my dog too. <laughs> hey, so. this could be like a great advertising marketing thing for your teacher oh yeah for sure I expand the market you know you never know yeah for sure professional dog training in multi-languages and commands multi-language commands yeah but you know what because dogs are daltonians they seem black and white you might try a bigger screen you know so they oh, can yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. i'll get a projector if i need to yes <laughs> so i did have a question for you because being uh, an Asian in Paris, have you received some racial slurs concerning the coronavirus? Because it's been on the news that some communities openly attacking Asians outside mm -hmm. on the streets using physical and verbal violence. And it's been a huge disappointment because we know that France is trying to be a very welcoming country to immigrants. And it's just like very, very sad to see those news on Twitter and on social media. Yeah. I actually got... I suppose one verbal abuse here oriented towards Corona. It happened in March, uh, yeah, when it was just blowing up in France. 
and I was walking down Shetley at night by myself and had someone stepped right in front of me and shouted in my face, messy polychrono, and walked off. So that was, fortunately, I haven't received anything, any physical um, aggression or anything like that. But this verbal aggression was quite um, a, a shock to me because I have never received anything overt racism, overt show of racism towards me, which is quite lucky. But my friends, my um, Asian friends here, they've had some worse experiences than me. Um, it, it is quite sad to see because I think um, in a way, like during this pandemic, you know, everyone's suffering, every single country is suffering from this. Well, it sounds quite cheesy, but I think it's a time for people to kind of reunite against the virus rather than pointing fingers at uh, at Asians, well, Chinese people. But I suppose when people are scared or in stress, you know, it's easier to blame someone, blame us, blame a cause. Mm-hmm. It's quite sad. Because yeah. it shows the worst of people, but it could also show the best. So this yeah. happened like in both directions. Like stress can make you very mean and evil. Like it can also make you very compassionate. And all of a sudden, you're just like giving all of yourself to help others. Like yeah. the healthcare professionals, like you were mentioning. So it's very interesting because I went into this grocery store, right, in Montreal. And they were so happy and grateful that they did not go bankrupt, that they started like giving out a bunch of candies to everyone. Oh. And I'm like, it's so cute. It's very strange, but it sort of goes against the sanitary rules of you should not be distributing stuff to people like that have touched, you know? Yeah. I think it's like the small things, no? It's just like the small yeah. things. It's a very, very kind gesture. I agree. Because uh, in France, now when you order takeout or things like that, like, Many small restaurants are just so grateful for your business, so grateful that you're choosing their restaurant out of all the hundreds you could choose. They would give you free things, free candy. People writing like messages on the on your takeout bag. It's always like the smallest things that touches you. I find. Yeah, for sure. Even if even if it comes from a stranger, because in the end you wouldn't know like who wrote that message. Yeah. Whatever it is, even if it's like a stupid smiley face, you're like, oh, this person yeah. took the time to do it. Yeah, for sure. So tell me more about your takeouts. <laughs> in a way, I take out more so than I did before because of the convenience, because of confinement. But at the same time, I tell myself this is to, um, well, I always choose to order from small restaurants that's vegan, you know, it's more specific, maybe have less customers. And in a way, I think, oh, you know, I'm helping them. These are the restaurants I like. Why not give them more business in this time of hardship? Because people, I know a lot of people now, well, a restaurant may be a luxury to eat out, you know, as often as they did before. These small businesses, they're not like chains like, I don't know, Pizza Hut or McDonald's that don't need to worry going bankrupt. These small restaurants really need people's business to survive throughout like, this hard time. I'm ordering from them and they're doing all these discounts, you know, like mutually beneficial. <laughs> it's like, get me the good food, but also helping a local restaurant. Lucy, so I wanted to touch on that because... Now that people are doing more and more takeouts, what's going to happen to the French culture of sitting down, having this social time, of eating for hours on end? Because the takeout might be very good for the economy, but like, do, do you think people will get into the habit of eating alone at home and not interacting as much? Because, you know, it's not the same as just sitting down at a cafeteria with your colleagues, right? I, you know, I read something this week, actually. I know in the US, there's this, uh, takeout service that's growing so so fast because people are 
like you know getting used to ordering and eating at home eating alone or things like that and not going to the restaurant but i find that the terrace culture in france in paris is so deeply rooted that as soon as this confinement is over and the virus is under control people will flock out again to those terraces do their brunch with friends maybe the convenience of takeout will always um well maybe it might be more appreciated now but people won't choose one or the other and i think people especially here i find that people like to enjoy things like eating together with friends sitting at a cafe and drink i think once as soon as that's allowed people will probably go back more to that yeah that's an amazing point of view and i think i agree in some sort like we all have a part to play in consumerism and deciding like whether our money goes into big businesses big restaurants or so smaller smaller local restaurants and it's nice to try to promote that because it also gives a chance for diversity but also talking about food and talking about lifestyle in general do you think this confinement has made people fatter or healthier it was either one one way or the other once i've gone back to work i have not noticed well in my immediate surroundings anyone putting on significant amounts of weight as you see on social media but in paris <laughs> oh yeah exactly i'm in fashion in paris so no one put on significant amount of weight but i did after speaking to a few friends of mine one of my best friends he actually was going through one bottle of red per night because you would start drinking i suppose quite early or late afternoon and if you have your netflix on or as most people would put on a movie or something like that it's quite easy to drink a lot especially while it relaxes you and something to pass time i suppose uh, one of one of my other friends she stopped smoking during the time because of the fear of covid uh but i find that diet wise i i well me personally i started eating way more than i would normally because i well you normally in your life you're doing things you wouldn't food wouldn't be available to you or wouldn't always be appropriate to eat whereas when i was confined at home it was just by my fingertips you know and it's so easy just to pick up something and eat yeah. it order stuff and then someone comes at the door and feeds you exactly well personally i put on weight because i wasn't moving i was just eating and at that time you know because it was such a hard time for everyone you think oh let's not deny ourselves the only little pleasures we can have and <laughs> it's one of those so you yeah. just you know, yeah you already stressed because there's a pandemic raging outside yeah we try to survive exactly just have an extra piece of cake why not You want to talk about the delivery guy who came twice? Oh gosh! Oh my gosh! That was a low point. It was <laughs> no, because I was trying to save on delivery fee, so I ordered a huge meal. Well, it wouldn't be. I ordered a day's worth of food, thinking it would last me the whole day. And obviously, come around three p.m., <laughs> I was hungry again, and I had finished everything. I previous order, so I ordered from the same place another big one, hoping it would last me till tomorrow. And lo and behold, the same guy knocks on my door, like five hours later, and recognizes me and asks me, "I have already been here." No, it was a shameful moment. <laughs> same driver, same delivery driver. <laughs> Don't want that to happen again, ever. <laughs> so now you've learned your lesson, and exactly. at least from two different restaurants, if I'm going to do it twice in a day. <laughs> I am loyal to all my vegan restaurants. That's why. 
Yeah, so talking about vegan lifestyle, so it's been about six, seven years that you've gotten into it. So can you tell us about how you transitioned from a regular diet to a vegan diet? Yeah, actually, I want, I was quite interested in vegetarianism when I, since I was a teenager. But of course, I was living with my parents and they were scared I wasn't going to grow, I wasn't going to get enough nutrients, so I couldn't be a vegetarian. Did you um, grow? But, nope. Even if I ate everything, the milk, the eggs, the you know, everything, ate everything. The meat still short, never really grew very tall. <laughs> I don't think it's a diet. I would say it's genetics, but another topic. So as soon as I left for university, I decided to go vegetarian, which wasn't very hard at all because um, I was never a huge fan of meat in the first place. They already had a lot of um, mock meat uh, options. And I find that, you know, if I had eggs and dairy products, I wasn't I did not feel deprived because I still could have majority of the foods except meat, which wasn't difficult for me to cut out. However, after spending a year in Chicago and I went to London, for some reason I was browsing on the internet and I came across a clip from Earthlings. I don't know what motivated me to watch that. And I watched a whole documentary of Earthlings. And after that, I went cold turkey. I went on the day I decided to go vegan. And I haven't looked back since, and that was yeah seven years and a bit ago, mm -hmm. seven and a half years now. So did you just get rid of your animal product? Back then, I actually just moved to London, so I was living in an accommodation, so I didn't have a fridge stocked of um, things. So, I mean, in the beginning, it, I must say the transition was not as easy as I thought would it would be because I was already already vegetarian. I, I thought, you know, just dairy and eggs and um, honey how hard can it be you know to cut that out but then you realize when you go to the supermarket the amount of milk powder or um, milk derivatives gelatin in the sweets a lot of places you wouldn't think would have animal products embedded in would actually contain things that's not vegan i think it probably took me six months maybe to i was actively aware whenever i buy food to demand if it's vegan, to look at ingredients. It, it, it was much harder than I thought it would be Yeah, in the beginning mm -hmm. to do the transition. Yeah, did you have a community where you could find support or some somebody that you could look up to, for example? No, not really. When I, was, um, when I decided to go vegan, none of my close friends were vegan. Actually, I searched internet and YouTube for, for community, I suppose, the vegan community. It was growing at that time, but definitely nowhere near as big as it is now veganism and there were some channels there were some youtubers who were very passionate about it which helped me because they were also much more informed on the effects of animal agriculture on the environment as well as health i read some studies on that and because you know in the beginning when i went vegetarian i thought veganism was a bit extreme because we're not killing the cows for milk. We're not killing chickens for egg. I thought there was no killing in um, obtaining these animal products. I, I was definitely wrong. There's so much cruelty involved in um, you know, obtaining milk and eggs that I wasn't aware of before. I just thought, no murder, it's okay. You know, mm -hmm. We're not eating their flesh. But Earthling, I would definitely recommend to anyone who's interested in it because it's a very well-rounded documentary on veganism including uh, house pets actually because there are lots of um, breeding in the puppy mills and 
pets that's um, kept in horrible conditions and you know certain dogs bred to death because they wanted to have as many pup like i i don't think dogs should be pregnant so often and you have no rest between having litters it's very cruel and it damages their body so there's a lot of different facets to um exploiting animals i wasn't aware of before mm-hmm. which kind of reinforced my um, decision to stay vegan i do think it should it's something that should be promoted but i also find that extreme well over enthusiastic vegans who try to convert everyone are not always well received so i don't think it should be patronized vegans should be patronizing or wanting everyone to be perfect because it's not about a few people being a perfect vegans and the rest of the world eating meat. I just think it's good to have people be aware of the process meats or animal products go through to arrive on their plate. And then from there on, they can have an informed decision on whether they choose to eat it or not and to have it in their lives or not or to reduce it or not. After being vegan for seven years, I realized when I first started my BA, they're on the table of us. We always eat together. There were maybe perhaps, including me, two people who didn't eat meat. But towards the end of the BA, I realized people started to slowly convert. And by the end, meat eaters were in the minority, which was very interesting to see. And I was curious, you know, I asked my friends who all decided to reduce or eliminate animal products from their diet. Why? And I think there are a lot of benefits people see from vegans from skin or vitality and when you're not you know putting it on forcing it onto people people can be interested and they want to know you know about more about this and make their own choices rather than have it forced upon them or guilt tripped into Mm -hmm. so i think that's a more effective way and when they realize there's so many nowadays especially so many amazing vegan options that taste amazing you know food wise you're not going to be deprived. So it's. I think it's a great way. Well, for me, I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah, I read this book called uh, Proteinaholic when I was young, and it also opened up my eyes about animal cruelty, and especially because I worked in labs, I could see that even in a scientific world, it's not always right the way we treat animals and the way we use them as tools for to satisfy our curiosity. So there's this big ethical issue as to... Is there a reason why we don't learn about slaughterhouses in schools and we just learn about, oh, animals live in farms, like in children's books? And it's definitely not the case when you're looking at big industries and especially yeah. for milks. Like it just really hurts for the mother cows to just be impregnated so she can give off her calf who's going to yeah. be eaten and we use up her milk. Exactly. So I definitely agree with that. Like why are we hiding our kids? real truth about animal treatment and also why is there such a belief about we need this protein otherwise we wouldn't grow old otherwise we'd be weak and otherwise our bones would also collapse so you know how in france we have this ad to sell milk and it's mm-hmm. always about the calcium it's always about oh you don't want osteoporosis for yeah. women later on for kids so you have to drink this otherwise you're going to be sick but it's definitely something that's marketing, first of all, and something that might be even more damaging for your health because drinking so much milk should not be encouraged even for your heart. Like it's fat, it's real fat for you and you're not a calf. I just think drinking another animal's breast milk, it's very unnatural if you really think about it. Because I don't know, if somebody offered me even human breast milk, I don't think it would be appealing for anyone 
to want to drink human breast milk, and that's from the same species. Just to think, if you put it in perspective, like to drink another animal's milk that's meant for its baby, and it's it's quite a natural thing, and we're the only animal that does it. Is essentially there are some humans who give milk to their cats, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but they don't active. The cats don't actively seek out, you know, <laughs> some milk yeah. from other animal. It's yeah, it's true. Yeah, like you said, you know, the hormones in the cow's milk or it's the nutrients needed for a baby calf to grow, and it's not meant for a human body. And there's a lot of things in there that's not compatible with us, and it's not meant to be consumed by another animal.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that. In terms of societal norms with the culture, when you look at even French cooking, there's a lot of butter. Yeah, that plays a big role into oh, we need this milk because otherwise we're sort of losing the sense of identity. Like if there's not as much butter, if there's more olive oil, we would not be the same French. Exactly, <laughs> you're just using、yeah. butter everywhere. Yeah, for sure. A lot of it's cultural as well. It's so hard to eliminate、uh, this ingrained culture. You know, it's such a big part, especially food here in France. The yeah, cheese,、definitely. the wine. No, I agree. It's difficult. But I just think it's a it's great to have alternatives for people who do want it. And I think it it has to be a fair education for kids to make their own decisions because、yeah. I grew up in France where at the cafeteria there was always a vegetarian option for usually people with religious beliefs. Yeah, it was not like a nutritious meal in itself. It was just the meal minus the meat. So、yeah. they give you more starch and more vegetables. So in the end, you you're not being exposed to tofu or tempeh or other. Alternatives. You、yeah. just have less meat on your plate. Like you just minus the meat, and that's it. So I felt like it's not giving a good example. For example, for kids to not be exposed to all the options available, especially if it could be better for your heart in terms of inflammations. Excess red meat is well known to cause、uh, heart attacks. If we want to live better life and healthier lives, maybe we can learn that having other options is not necessarily depriving you from goodness. It's just a different flavor, different taste that we need to learn how to cook with. Yeah, for sure. I think food education is definitely something that's lacking in education. It's not focused on at all. You know, food and nutrition. It's not definitely not included in the general education system. So I happen to have few Chinese students on Aichaki as well, and I've had this discussion with them. As to why meat is so prominent in Asian culture, and even when you try to order something vegetarian, they don't think that the little pieces of bacon would count. They just be like,、yeah. oh, just like meat powder. So tiny,、yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, basically not there. <laughs> yeah, so it's difficult for them to detach themselves from the culture of eating meat because、yeah. meat, like it's considered the norm. It's not just for rich people. It's literally everyone eats meat. Yeah. So I found that interesting. If one would, for example, open a vegan restaurant in an Asian country, would, would that ever be successful? I think in Asia there's a lot of we would say temple food because they come from Buddhist monks who don't believe in killing, and those restaurants are basically vegan、mm-hmm. because they don't believe in harming animals. I suppose it's not veganism, but it's more like the Buddhist. Belief of、um, harming no one. So there are a lot of, I suppose, temple foods in China, but it is actually growing the vegan market. I mean, I think China, in this regard, is a bit slow to keep up with the Western veganism and this revolution with food and health and well-being. But it is, it is definitely growing. Every time I go back to China, there's、um, more and more options that you can find. But like you said, and sometimes they cook things in fish sauce or oyster sauce. It's not. It's an awareness that hasn't developed, and it's much more rare. To find 
someone who's vegan and mostly it comes from Buddhist beliefs that mm-hmm. would drive to do that. And to go back on this, one of my students actually said, we do not have this education on the environment as much. So mm-hmm. there's not this big awareness that we have in Europe or perhaps in North America about climate change. Like they actually don't care as much. It's not that they don't care at all. I think they don't have the same awareness of what does it do if you just accumulate so much trash? What does it do with the carbon emission if you're eating so much meat? How long you drive in your car? So it could also be that the education is not just on food, but like what's the impact of eating this kind of food, not just in terms of flavor, but also what does it mean for the rest of us? Because we're talking about the collective mindset versus the individualism. It's a little paradoxical, actually. Yeah. We want to think about helping each other out, but yet not really considering climate change as a big threat for the community. Yeah, for sure. I think climate change is definitely not well-educated and it's not focused on much in China. I mean, right now it's all about growth, 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 you know, economic development and all that and so many things are put on the back burner to make way for boosting the economy which is a shame because in the end climate change can do much more harm in the in terms of growth for the economy but i think china's they're trying to make some drastic the country with one of the most solar panels if not the most so they are making changes but i think the general public also needs education because you know each person can do its part his or her part to help improve this situation but i think education in china in many ways is lacking not just on the nutrition and environment factor um yeah it's quite a it's, it's quite a <laughs> rigid standard narrowed down in many ways the material that's being taught in school but hopefully it's evolving and hopefully for the best i mean it's also evolving in europe when i see the different education systems so now it's slowly changing and i'm hoping that it could be the same in other countries as well so as long as you're willing to see progress and as long as you're considering evolution to be better for the, for the human being and not just like for the profit of money, then it's also a good sign. It's hopeful for the, for the future. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So thank you so much, Lucy, for being on this podcast. Would you thank have... You for inviting me. Oh, always a pleasure. It's been a while. Uh, would you have a last piece of advice for our listeners? Be curious, stay curious, and always um, don't just believe the first piece of information you come from, I suppose. Go look for answers yourself, and um, yeah, just be try to be aware, I don't know, stay informed, stay current. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Education Monsters. I hope you liked it. If you'd like to take a French lesson with me, don't hesitate to go on the Education Monsters website to book a class. I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please, please, please consider making a donation to my Patreon account. This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again, and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.